can't run. Guffin TV podcast. Do not cross Alan and Montoya. Can't run. This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV podcast. Welcome to Gotham TV Podcast, the unofficial podcast about the TV show Gotham and the DC Connected Universe. I'm one of your hosts, John. And I'm Derek. Welcome back. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome on board. Yeah, so I think straight into the news. actually quite a lot of news this week despite what we've said previously in other podcasts but in gotham news uh, tvguide.com has a vote and over 350,000 votes were cast for this season's best news show and lo and behold drumroll gotham came out on top mm-hmm. gotham won which is great news for Obviously, everyone involved um, in the production of the TV show. Um, Actors, cast, crew, creators, showrunners, studios, uh, production company, you name it, across (laughs) the board. And that's great news that, you know, there is that interest. Yeah, absolutely. TV TV Guide also pointed out, obviously, this was the most anticipated show of of the season as well. So it's nice to see the kind of, it's nice to see when a show is really anticipated that's also getting the votes after so many episodes have been aired in the US that uh, that people are still liking it and still enjoying Definitely. it. Definitely. Yeah, and I, I think we'd be uh, we'd be casting that vote as well for best new show of the of the season for us as well, I think so far. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. But in other news this week, what have we been doing for the entire week so far when we're normally preparing for this show? Uh <laughs> Um well, we have been playing Lego Batman 3 yeah. um, Beyond Gotham, coinciding with Interstellar, we went beyond the planet <laughs> into space with uh, with Batman. Um, yeah, great fun game. Um, we've talked about uh, Lego Batman all the way through its making of. I think uh, from the from the the idea of it right back in in April when we knew the game was coming, all the way up to the release, we we saw a couple of playthroughs of it in New York, a couple of panels about it, um, and we've uh, we've been playing it now for probably a good a good twelve or fifteen hours that we could have been focusing on other other more productive stuff but it was great fun it's a rainy weekend in dublin so why not yeah really great fun and actually speaking of rain if you hear anything that may be or may sound like rain um it's because we have been in noah's deluge at the moment (laughs) um so that might just be the river bursting its banks outside the door you never know and we've had a lot of rain but luckily, we had Lego Batman to keep our minds away from impending biblical disasters. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's great. It's funny. It's witty. It has our favorite superhero, or should I say anti-hero, Dark Knight, mm-hmm. being fairly dismissive of poor old um, Robin. Mm-hmm. And uh, great fun and loving it to bits. Loads of good little um, puzzles, good action play. Still the odd few little glitches, but where would we be without the odd little glitch in a Lego uh, game? Absolutely. It's almost part and parcel, but it looks really good. And we're just 
playing it on PS3 as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, one of the other good things about it is loads of good little in-jokes for anybody who enjoys the comic books. Loads of, loads of fun little moments there. There's even a level featuring uh, Adam West um, from the from Lego Batman 66, which uh, we've yet to play, but it uh, looks, looks like it's going to be great fun. But we haven't saved any of the Adam Wests in peril yet, no. so um, that's our bad. <laughs> to get out and buy it if you have a little time or if it's raining or snowing where you are. Uh, Go get it. Yeah, it's great for kids and big kids alike. Absolutely, which is definitely us. <laughs> and then, with regards to the cinematic universe mm. in DC, in the DC world, we have um, Jared Leto has been earmarked or rumored, I should say, to play the Joker in the Suicide Squad movie. With um, obviously other members of the Suicide Squad, like. Harley Quinn. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting. A lot of this stuff kind of broke last week, and it sounds like fantasy casting. Um, everything that's that's in here. Uh, so essentially, David Ayer has been is has been kind of talking up the fact that he's he's uh, writing and directing uh, Suicide Squad, which he's calling the dirty dozen of superhero films. Um, the basic premise of the Suicide Squad is that there's a bunch of villains who, essentially, with a gun to their head or some uh, or some um, bombs strapped around their strapped around their body, they're told. If they don't carry out tasks for the government, uh, they'll be killed. Uh, and the lineup this time, um, it's been confirmed to include the Joker and been confirmed to include Harley Quinn. Uh, and some casting has started to come out. So this is where we're getting Jared Leto playing Joker. Rumoured at this stage. R- yes, absolutely. Rumored. Um, there a big is... line under rumoured. Yeah, yeah, big line. What um, do you think? What do you think? I could see him mm-hmm. uh, playing that. I think Jared Leto is brilliant. Um I remember first listening to 30 Seconds to Mars purely because it was um, him and obviously it was his brother and his band. Mm-hmm. And I really like those um, those albums. I've really enjoyed those. We've seen them a couple of times uh, play live yeah. over in, in Dublin. So loved that. I've loved, I've loved his film career as well. Um, some of it's been quite difficult, uh, in particular the... Um, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream. American History uh, X, wasn't it? No, it's uh, Fight Club, wasn't it? No, Fight Club, but Ameri- um, Requiem for a Dream was particularly difficult. Um, it was good to see him in Dallas Buyers Club mm-hmm. and get that kind of recognition. Um, so I've enjoyed him in film, I've enjoyed him on TV, and so on. I've enjoyed, then, lastly, his music. So I'm kind of quite excited by seeing him um, rumoured to be uh, in in line to play the Joker in the Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, it's some very big shoes to fill. I feel sorry for him. I think I heard someone make the point about uh, about Jared Leto in this that it'll prove very quickly whether he's a fan of the comics or whether he's a fan of the material uh, because for the next three to four years he's going to be putting up a question about how are you going to do a better job than Heath Ledger, um, which Heath Ledger put up with for two or three years after taking on the part from Jack Nicholson. So it's going to be interesting uh, for, well, for him. If one of the things we have learned from asking such as Victoria Cartagena and Andrew Stewart Jones um, and then at New York Comic Con asking um, the cast that were there about how they you know what influence do comic books play you know to what extent do they look at other actors who have played those roles before and I mean I think the general consensus I seem to hear coming back from actors and is 
of course we're mindful of the material mm -hmm. and we will read the material and look at elements of it to make sure that we're not suddenly going completely off the wall potentially and we're respectful of other people's interpretations of the character but ultimately they're in it they're a professional so they're in it to put essentially their own spin i mean you know we heard a norm like ben mckenzie said I'm not here to imitate. If I'm here to do imitation mm -hmm. uh, of someone else who has played um, Jim Gordon, I'm not going to get very far, and the audience are going to spot that. I have to do my version of it. And, of course, he's drawing from the same material as the previous actors. Yeah. So I think I'm really excited to see Jad Leto. I think the thing for me will be he might even just look like the Joker from... Arkham Asylum. His legs are so thin and we saw him on stage. He could actually look like a cartoon. That real thin version of the Joker that you see. Yeah. He has the potential to <laughs> actually be able to do that physically because yeah, his legs are literally cocktail sticks. Absolutely. And he's five years older than me and, uh, and, lo <laughs> and looks about 20. So um, yeah. Fair dues. Okay. <laughs> um, and other casting news for for the Suicide Squad. six years older than me, yeah. and <laughs> I still look just as good as him. But that's very <laughs> true. That's probably true. <laughs> In other casting news from Suicide Squad, um, there's other kind of rumors about Jai Courtney, who I know from uh, I know from Good Day to Die Hard. I think it is. Was the, is that like the seventh Die Hard film, the one that, that everybody awful forgets? Film the in Russia. One. Yep, that terrible one where he yeah. plays the Bruce Willis's son. Um, what I like him more for is uh, is his film, the Jack Reacher film with Tom Cruise that yeah, he did. Brilliant. He's great in that. That's the first really time I saw him, I think, on film, and I really yeah. enjoyed that film. Yeah, um, and he's being rumored to play Deadshot in uh, in the Suicide Squad film. Uh, also being rumoured is Margot Robbie, uh, who was in um, Wolf of Wall Street, has uh, been rumoured yes. to play Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn is such a big ca character for, for cosplayers uh, who who are at every single convention I've been at for the last couple of years. It's really interesting to see a lady take on this part. And everything I've heard about her, everybody is delighted about this uh, this idea of the casting. Will she have the hammer? Possibly, possibly. And will she be known as Harley Quinzel, as you kept correcting me a number of episodes ago? Yes, Harley Quinzel is the original before she becomes Harley Quinn. Yeah, um, that's her. That's her name when she's a psychiatrist. But this sounds like it's not going to be an origin story of the characters. It sounds they're like going to go straight into the suicide part of it. Yeah, who will die first? <laughs> Hopefully, none, because the point is they don't die. They go and do and do secret missions. And then we have heard as well that Will Smith and Tom Hardy are in talks uh, for unspecified, in quotes, unspecified roles. Mm. So, presumably Bane is back. Maybe. Will Tom Hardy reprise the role for this film, do you think? Probably not, because he got, he did die at the end, did he, in yes. The Dark Knight Rises? Yeah. I can't remember now. I yeah, just remember him getting... He was yeah, shot he and got blown, by Catwoman. Yeah, by Catwoman. Yeah. So he got blown across the room. So it would be unlikely he'd get up from that. And then there's Will Smith, who maybe will come as Mr. Fish Mooney. Oh, maybe. <laughs> oh, very good. So Mr. Fish Mooney would be in the film of Suicide yeah, maybe Squad. Maybe he will be 
shellfish. Uh, no, that's not worth. That's not worth it. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. And that joke is way too awful for yeah. it to be considered seriously by Hollywood. Um, you, you just wonder if perhaps he was in. He was in the offices with uh, with his wife with Jada, um, and they happened to just kind of take him inside and said, "Well, we have you here. Maybe would you like yeah, to do a movie yeah, exactly. in the future? Is that where the idea came from that he's in talks?" Really, have no idea who what character he'd play uh, at all. And again, these are all at very, very good rumour stage at the moment. Yeah, there's very early stages at it's, the moment. There's a lot of people in the production that are obviously trying to promote the 25 films that they've uh, that they've got coming up on the slate. So David Ayres is definitely connected to the film. He's definitely yeah. uh, involved in writing and, and, and they've directing got to, it. They've got to put something out to keep people interested till 20... 28. 50? Something, like that. something like that. No, <laughs> actually, like that. this is one of the early ones, though, isn't it? So, I mean, in that sense... It's probably about right that there should be casting rumours. Yeah, but even in 2050, Jared Leto will still look about 20. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, that's true. He never, it's the man that never ages. True. Um, definitely. Um, and then, and of course, just quickly as well, people will have seen the Suicide Squad referenced in Arrow. So, I mean, that's yeah. another area where we've seen them very recently as yeah. well. And then... On some final DC TV news, speaking of the Arrow, um, it's about Constantine. Now, we said that we, and we certainly aren't going to be doing um, a podcast about Constantine, but we have been lucky enough to be given um, some review copies of episodes um, four and five of Constantine. Um, And we also got episode three as well at the same time, Mm -hmm. Devil's Vinyl. And we had done a review for the um, the first episode um, because we saw that at New York Comic Con. And we've just put up, again, a review of Constantine Episode 4. And we'll do the same for Episode 5. Unfortunately, it's not aired in Ireland at this moment in time. It's on Amazon Prime Instant Video in the UK, which we um, are unable to get here in Ireland. Um, and obviously, it's on NBC in the US. Um, but we've been lucky enough to get these episodes, so we're able to look at them and review them, and we thought that we would do written reviews. So these are, are up on the website at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Right now they're coming highly recommended from us. Um, the, the show Constantine was one that we were really interested in. We saw the pilot. We thought it was really good. Um, needed a few tweaks to, to what's been happening in it, but now it's four episodes in. Uh, the episode was... Feast of Friends, episode four. Yeah, Feast of Friends, which is essentially taken directly from issue one of Hellblazer. Um, it, it's a uh, and issue two of Hellblazer. Sorry, um, it's a really good storyline where it, it gives a little bit more background on the 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 story that happened with John Constantine that put him into this situation. It gives a little bit more background, a little bit more details of him and his friend. If you are any way interested in the Hellblazer comic books and you're of an adult viewer we will definitely say this show is a much more adult show than, than Gotham is definitely there's, there's a lot more violence a lot more uh, a lot more special effects and action and horror really yeah and just uh, reference it. I suppose to the occult uh, and yeah voodoo that type of stuff i suppose absolutely but um, I'd, I'd highly recommend it if you're into if you're into the comic books check out particularly episode four i thought it was a really standard episode for the series so far and hopefully it's going down a path where it'll it'll really keep going for a long time absolutely and as well we were also able to get involved in a conference call roundtable discussion with the showrunners of mm. constantine we were asked um to if we wanted to call in and of course we kind of didn't want to pass up the opportunity so we got um to 
sit in on and ask a couple of questions um, with Daniel Cerrone and David Escoria from Constantine. And we're not able, as such, to do a podcast about that um, mm-hmm. and put that um, audio up. But we have the the transcript, and we will be able to filter and sort through that yeah. and put up um, written transcript of of that roundtable discussion with other different um, media people and journalists um, in in the near future. Yeah, it was quite a long conversation. It was about forty five minutes where um, where each journalist got to ask a question uh, about about the show and, and and of the two uh, the two principal showrunners for the show. Um, what makes it of interest again to to our listeners, I think, would probably be David S. Goyer. Um, particularly, we've done our own interview with him, which is up on the site, and we have him on the podcast before. Um, but this particular interview with with David is is where he's talking about you know why he chose to do a TV show. Uh, firstly, why he chose to do Constantine after doing films like Man of Steel, after writing the the three uh, Batman films with uh, Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan, um, after doing Nick Fury: Agent of Shield, the TV series, <laughs> which yeah, I, still asked him, I still you haven't. I still haven't asked resist. him about. This is the second time we've met him, and I still haven't asked him about the Nick Fury: Agent of Shield, uh, starring David Hasselhoff. One day, Whoa. one day I will get to ask and him that question. And it is the anniversary; it's the twenty-fifth anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. <laughs> so it's ripe for the asking. It's a year of celebration and for, we for David. David well, you have failed. I have failed this podcast again, John. Oh no! Because <laughs> well, I wasn't. I wasn't around either. I was in Brussels. Yeah, that's um, right. With work, so I wasn't around, unfortunately. But yeah. Derek was lucky enough to have. Um, this roundtable seems really interested in the question that Derek had asked about the music involved with the show. Yeah, Bear McCreary is the musician that does all the does all the soundtrack for this. He does the soundtracks for Walking Dead, does the soundtrack for Agents of Shield. Um, he's a fantastic musician. I asked uh, I asked them about the music in the show. Uh, they were delighted to talk about it. A really good, a really good little bit that we got from that. They also talk about where the series is going. Their intentions for a bunch of characters from the comic books that are going to be coming in. They essentially, just to give a little snippet of what they said, they essentially said that every single one of John Constantine's friends will be brought in and will be revealed over the course of the next up, up to up to episode thirteen or fourteen. That's exciting um, stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So, anyone interested in comics as well at all should check out Hellblazer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, John Constantine was invented established by Alan Moore, like the great Alan Moore, the Watchmen, V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. From Hell, all these really quite iconic and amazing graphic novels from 80s did Swamp Thing, which is where he introduced um, John Constantine mm-hmm. as well. And that was taken up by then John Delano um, in Hellblazer series of comics, which has, has gone on and on and on in a really good way and so anyone interested in comics should really check those out as well yeah. as check out the TV show and one of the points that Daniel Sterone actually made was that essentially once once Hellblazer started as a comic book it ran all the way to to the end of its run without any breaks so you know over over 350 comics I think it was wow. without any breaks at all and this show takes takes place roughly at the, at issue one you meet Constantine about the same age he was in issue one of the comic and they have all that stuff to explore uh, hopefully if the if the series keeps running so uh, go check it out and I think with that we can probably get on to our review for the week Is there any, uh, anything else from the news you want to cover or no I think that is it and I think with all that talk about Constantine we should move on to talking about Gotham excellent <laughs>
So this week it's episode six of Gotham, Spirit of the Goat. Can't believe we're already on six episodes of the show. It's been excellent so far. Um, so this episode was written by Ben Edlund, uh, who I know as the creator of The Tick. Uh, definitely a favorite of my house. When I, was, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, he did the live action version and obviously the cartoon version of that. He was involved in Angel. Uh, he was involved in Supernatural as the showrunner for that show for many years. Um, and it's been directed by TJ Scott, so another returning director uh, for the show. He, he did episode four, which was Arkham, um, which we really liked, as you, yeah. as you may have heard on our, on our podcast. Um, and this time he's directing, uh, directing Spirit of the Goat. Um, do you want to give us a synopsis, Jack? Yeah. The murder of a wealthy young lady, the eldest sibling in a wealthy family, is displayed on a bridge in Gotham and bears all the hallmarks of a ten-year-old case previously thought to be closed. The previous investigation surrounds a centuries-old bogeyman superstition known as Spirit of the Goat, which was brought to a close, or thought to be, by Harvey Bullock and his partner, the Detective Dix. Despite Harvey Bullock having shot the perpetrator, known by his nickname as Milky, the case literally comes back to haunt Harvey Bullock who is now investigating a new series of murders with Jim Gordon, as they try to find connections between the old and the new series of murders. In the meantime, the Major Crimes Unit, the MCU, finally move on their suspicions of Jim Gordon, as Rennie Montoya and Christmas Allen obtain a warrant for his arrest, after they find a witness who places Jim at the docks and also in possession of a gun, However, unbeknownst to Jim Gordon and the MCU and Harvey Bullock, as he is placed in cuffs, he has a very old friend and will likely have ramifications for Jim Gordon and all his associations into future episodes. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) What an ending to that episode. Um... Uh, overall, this is a really good episode. I'm, I'm delighted to see uh, to see Ben Edlund take on this this the writing of this episode. I've loved I loved many of his stuff before, and he's done a really good job of doing a very different episode this time. Um, for me, this felt like a very different episode of Gotham, but a really cool one. I like you know getting a bit of more revelation about who Harvey Bullock is as a character and what he was like ten years in the past. I uh, loved getting that revelation about him. Um, yeah, really enjoyed this episode and uh, bringing the MCU back, our favourites. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Always <laughs> nice good to, to see, see the MCU. Nice to see Montoya and Allen back in here. And yeah, you don't mess with uh, mess with Montoya and Allen, definitely. <laughs> Not at all. Um, what do you think of the episode? Yeah, stuff? I mean, my impressions on this is that, again, I thought it was a really solid, a really strong episode. Um, and actually one in which I think the investigation really could stand on its own two feet without any serialised elements to it. I thought the case of the Spirit of the Goat was really good, really creepy, and had enough twists and turns that it could have actually just been an episodic episode. It didn't necessarily need those serialised elements to me. So that I really, really enjoyed. I think this is without a shadow of a doubt, um, Harvey Bullock as a character, his best episode, and it's really good to see um, Donal Logue's range coming out. You know, he's Absolutely. done a lot of the comedic elements and, and so on, and now we really see him in a in a very different light, and I loved seeing that. I love that little kind of backstory element to um, Harvey Bullock. And then I think the other aspect of this is that... Um, 
who says we can't have a crossover with other <laughs> DC shows? I mean, firstly, it's a fairly superstitious, as I said in my synopsis, bogeyman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that links, it surely must link to Constantine. You could have that element, as we talked about in our news. Ma- maybe, maybe. Now I will say, this is not a supernatural character, whereas everything in Constantine is actually supernatural. There's a, obviously, the investigation goes on and they find out it's not supernatural, but the the spirit of the go concept absolutely could absolutely. have been used differently. And, but I agree, it's not supernatural. But And the point here is we have got our crossover. We've got TJ Scott, the director of this episode, who has directed an episode of, uh, of Constantine as well. So there is a crossover, right? There is a crossover. <laughs> and there could be in the future. And there could be in the future. Sometime. Mm-hmm. Season two, season three. I'm yeah. being optimistic. We've season got, four. Absolutely. We've exactly. got Jim Carrigan, the cop, coming up this week on Constantine. He's a, he's a well-known character in the DC Universe who's a cop as well. He could pop over. You never know. Absolutely. And, of course, that pesky green cube showed up again Yeah, uh, on the side of the skyscrapers. I know. You had the green cube. I am still convinced it's Quillen Farmer, but it showed up there with no reference to Quillen Farmer. No reference mm-hmm. to any form of pharmaceutical company. So maybe it is a queen consolidated. I have a feeling it might have been an establishing shot that was filmed and then they realised that there could be a connection to Queen and left it in. Uh, to Queen Industries and left it in. It's a, it's a very good possibility that they just used the same shot again and then went, oh, okay, actually, maybe we'll keep it. Uh, it's people their seem to think, exactly. People seem to think that it's connected, so we'll, we'll do it. I still think Quillen, I'm, I'm saying Quillen, um, it's. I, I think uh, it was Bruno Heller that mentioned that uh, that he's wondering himself. He's wondering whether the art department have just uh, have done something a bit fun for themselves that he wasn't aware of. Really, is is, uh, is the way he's put. Well, it, so. you really have to catch it now. But yeah, that green cue pops up again. But once you know it's there, you definitely won't miss it. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I know. What you, I know what you mean. So kicking off the episode, kicking off the the investigation, we start off with a with a ten year a ten years ago in Gotham. Yeah, I am. Spirit of the goat intones a man who keeps repeating it. Yeah, um, yeah. and that man is Randall Milky. Yeah. What did you think when you when you see him with the mask on his head? Did you think that man? I definitely thought, my gosh, this guy has big pointy ears. He's got half his face covered by a black mask, and he's got eye holes in it. He's wearing a black mask with with bat bat ears on the top of it. That's a bit. That's a bit close. It did it? look Batman-y, <laughs> but he would have been called Goatman. That's true. <laughs> which doesn't quite have the same ring to it. I don't think. A striking and fear into the hearts of. Obviously, could be curried. Um, whereas bats <laughs> tend not Probably. to form part of the cuisine. Yeah, I see what you mean. It did look very Batman-y yeah. with the pointy ears, and it, obviously it was black as mm-hmm. well. Um, I definitely saw that as a reference. But a really creepy vibe. It felt, it felt like when, like something from Seven when he was standing in his room looking at a mirror, smashing the mirror when he's calling out, I am the spirit of the goat. Um, yeah, a really creepy kind of vibe to, to begin this episode. Yeah, and he, you know, it, it essentially establishes this idea that um, he goes and he kidnaps uh, a lady called Shelley Larson mm-hmm. and that these this lady or... It's not exclusively ladies um, or, or women, but mm. it's um, it's from wealthy families, and it's also the firstborn yeah. or, or to those wealthy families. Yeah. So the eldest sibling, and we see him kidnap 
Shelley Larson. And there's some interesting stuff going on in the TV, which you um, had spotted as well. This, mm. These kidnappings weren't because there were previous ones to it. So this is, again, a series of these events, of these kidnappings and indeed murders. Mm-hmm. And that it's not um, casting a shadow over Thomas and Martha Wayne's birthday celebrations for their son, Bruce, mm-hmm. who I think they say we kind of try to capture it as like two years old yeah, or something the, like that. The way but... we kind of worked it out was he's roughly 12, potentially 13 in the show, uh, and this is 10 years ago, so it's definitely a birthday celebration for their infant son, I think, is, is, yeah. is perhaps what they say. It's quite difficult to catch that little touch, but it is it is a, a birthday celebration for a kid. And the other nice little touch, though, is that they've opened up the uh, up Wayne Manor to to orphans from the from the orphanage. Yeah, nice little reference to Dark Knight Rises there, um, which yeah. is how, how Wayne Manor finally is preserved and released by by Bruce to the uh, to the orphans of the city. Uh, yeah, it sounds like his parents would have been very happy with that as as how Wayne Manor is used after Dark Knight Rises. But we essentially then it moves on, and this lady, this Shelley Larson, this woman is kind of strung up almost in like semi crucifix type uh, position in um, what looks to be a theatre, mm-hmm. di- uh, an unused and abandoned theatre. There's yeah. lots of plastic sheeting everywhere. It looks sort of dusty, all that kind of thing. And here we see a younger Harvey Bullock, a, det- a younger Detective Bullock, with his then-partner, Detective Dix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and he, he explains the golden rule of God. We are waiting for backup. He's got Shelly Lawson in there. If he kills her, that's three people we lost to this maniac. Gotham's golden rule, Harvey. No heroes. So there you go, no heroes. He certainly wouldn't be very happy if uh, if, if Superman arrived or if Batman arrived, didn't he? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, um, it's a really interesting thing because actually Jim Gordon has that feeling as well, mm-hmm. this idea of vigilantes that you he's not interested in them. He's you know, and we've heard um, Ben McKenzie say about how he doesn't think that Jim Gordon has intentionally uh, wanted to create a superhero or, or anti-hero such as the Batman. So mm-hmm. it's almost that Detective Dix and Detective Gordon um, have similar views on this, that it, it should be down to the law and detectives investigating cases. Or is in this instance, Harvey Bullock is a much more heroic character than we've seen him with Jim Gordon. Yeah, big time. And I yeah. I think that's one of the great things about this episode is you see... It's almost like an untainted, um, this uh, younger version who's got much more um, aspiration of what he can do and what he can become and how he can change things. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's Detective Dix is the one who is, like, saying, you know... Hold back, you know, what's the golden rule? What's the golden rule? No heroes. Um, let me call for backup rather than go charging in. You know, this yeah. is preserve yourself before doing anything heroic. And it's a real nice look at this character because, you know, it suggests that he's gone through some really serious stuff that's undermined all those youthful uh, and well-intentioned aspirations beforehand. Yeah, but I definitely wouldn't say that he's become like Detective Dix or anything like that. You know, his that character is is still a good police officer. He's still showing Harvey the ropes. He's still telling him the thing, the right things to do in the yeah. city. He's definitely not talking like as if Harvey's learnt all his bad habits from from this character. Yeah, uh, Harvey seems to really respect him, as we hear later on in the episode. He's he's paying for his uh, his stay in the retirement home essentially. Um, Harvey is is 
really respectful of this character and he's learned a lot from him he's definitely not the bad influence on harvey he's not this isn't where harvey got all this bad not at stuff, all yeah. and i i think one of the things is is that in apprehending uh randall milky who's been undone by the spirit of the goat what we're th- seeing or thinking to be this supernatural element mm. and this curse almost is you know whilst he gets four shots into milky does harvey bullock at the same time Detective Dix gets kind of taken down. Yeah. Um, as you say, we see him later in a home, which I think seems to be more to do with the bottle than the bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it, you get this impression that this partnership that we see probably dissolves quite soon after. And who knows who um, Harvey Bullock has teamed up with then, who and where he may actually get some of those bad habits yeah. as you talk about but yeah. definitely detective dicks doesn't necessarily seem to be the one um giving him those bad habits that we might associate with him now he's actually just saying be a smart detective and yeah. um, don't be a hero absolutely. call for backup do the the investigation absolutely it's not just close it as quickly as you can by getting the wrong person that seems to be different uh, advice being yeah. given at some point in uh, Bullock's career. Yeah, it's great to see this kind of side of Harvey, I think, and it kind of gives a bit of hope to the relationship or the friendship, hopefully, that will build between Gordon and Bullock. Um, it, it'd be, it wouldn't be great if, if these two characters were fighting Gotham, uh, Gotham's villains together rather than rather than poor Gordon who has to battle for every single inch in every single case he works on, you know. Um, really, really good uh, really good to see that side of him. And it kind of gives, as I say, it gives a little bit of hope that potentially Jim might be able to influence Harvey and bring him back to that side of, the, of, of his personality. Definitely. And then we kind of get to 10 years later with Harvey Bullock kind of looking pretty shell-shocked um, as there is... This lady, a new case, uh, an Amanda Hastings, mm. who is again in this semi-crucifix position um, on a bridge just outside Gotham. Uh, she comes from money uh, and she's the first daughter for, uh, and sibling for this couple, the Hastings. Mm-hmm. And you see he is shell-shocked. We see that this flashback and it's come back to haunt him in the present day 10 years on yeah yeah it's, it's interesting this that, they, that there is a flashback being brought into this we talked when we talked to ben mckenzie and had the interview with him he's he was asked the question about will we see more of his past as a as a an army an army guy essentially as an army uh, officer um in the war and he's kind of called out that you know he doesn't like flashbacks he doesn't like the idea of that of that being a hinge or a, or a crutch for a tv show um you know, in this case, as a, as a flashback, I think it worked quite well. This idea of seeing a past case coming back to haunt them—of course, they're going to have to use some form of flashback. You can't just call out or read out a sheet that says, "Oh, this has happened before." Yeah, it's nice to see the kind of flashback that they use here. I I agree. I think, um, I think in this case the flashback worked, and I think sort of just from how it was shot, it didn't look different. I mean, it's like say, for example, with Arrow. The tone of the flashbacks in Arrow are kind of done. It's a more sort of faded out colour. It looks different. This didn't really look any different. It was the same kind of tone to 
the the shooting of the film of the TV show, I should say. It didn't try and do anything stylistically different. It was still in Gotham. It was done very much the same. It's just you had Harvey Bullock paired with someone different, and it kind of felt, I think, quite natural. But yep. I think at the same time, it's maybe there. This is the first time it's happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it's it, it's good to see those kind of flashbacks. It, it, a flashback at least like that maybe once um i wouldn't like to see this as being the opening of every episode uh definitely i wouldn't like them to over rely on it we're already in a prequel we're starting to see the development of characters from this point onwards and i'd like to continue to see that development rather than a bit of a bit of uh, a backstory on who how they got to this stage harvey unfortunately is just one of those characters that you really needed to see that to see how far he's fallen i suppose from what he was in the past yeah i think some of these characters here really do um cry out for some element of backstory being shown on the the show in flashback yeah perhaps and um, maybe an entire episode in flashback who knows it, how it could be done yeah um i'm not entirely sure that jim gordon needs to be one of those people i think harvey bullock yes i would say um alfred pennyworth mm. yes given that you know this is a um an alfred pennyworth um from Earth One uh, comic book, in a sense, where there is a military background that maybe his relationship with Thomas and Martha Wayne's was not just pure, I'm a butler, you're my master, mm-hmm. that there was something a bit more um, sort of uh, knowing. I think that, I think in Earth One, Thomas and Alfred had served together. I think Alfred had been brought on as actually a security guard and security protection. That is something different that. N- other than some of the comics, that's not being explored in the TV show yeah. or films before. Yeah. That is worthy, I think, of a flashback. Yeah. I think Harvey Bullock's fall from grace almost um, is worthy of flashbacks. Jim's, I'm not too sure. In uh, some I'm, ways, cer- I, I'm, I'm certain I'm 100% I don't want to see a flashback for Jim Gordon. No. He's, he's come to the city, he's, he's fully formed. I don't want to see a flashback for him. With Harvey, you're right. I don't want to see the fall from grace either. I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, again, it's something that they may just use as a filler episode, really, because Harvey didn't fall from grace. He just got eaten away. Um, you know, I, I don't think you need to see that. Showing a piece of, you know, a couple of minutes before the opening of, of this episode, which show you that he experienced this the the whole case originally terrified him anyway because he did feel should i be questioning this should i be thinking it is supernaturally involved this these people seem to be seem to have a strange connection um and are being slaughtered and murdered very ritualistically is there some form of connection here that i should be concerned about um it's a good reason to do a flashback for absolutely for a minute or two no i agree i didn't necessarily mean a fall from grace i meant yeah yeah, but that not slow degradation of his soul. Absolutely, I don't want to hear. I don't want to see the how he discovered his hat for the first time, or how he <laughs> how he got his trench coat. It's not necessary. I'm sure he bought them. He at walked the, into a shop. He bought them at the police surplus store. I'm sure. <laughs> I think the other thing as well is that ultimately, you know, it's the first time it's been done, and I mean, what I would say is that another TV show currently on at the moment, um, which I enjoy, may have overused the. Um, the technique. Don't get me wrong, I'm really enjoying Arrow, um, but I know in reviewing the first episode of season three, okay, it's nice to see a flashback that's not on the island and it's in Hong Kong, but nonetheless, it's another flashback. And it seems to be that this is a technique that's been hinged upon by that TV show, which 
I'm not entirely sure it needs to be done. And I think overuse of it can lead to fatigue in it, in yeah. anything. So in this sense, I think they're fine to do and justified in doing a flashback. It should not be used as a crutch, as Ben McKenzie says, yeah. to just try and do something. I think what you're trying to say is Arrow has failed the flashback. <laughs> but back to the investigation. But not the flash. <laughs> not the flash. Yes, failed the flashback, but not the flash. Um, but back to the investigation itself. Um, it's it's it, so essentially it takes them to the home of of Miss um, Hastings' parents um, with a very dubious looking psychiatrist um, sitting in the corner watching over them the whole time. Yeah, um, like Mister um, Hastings seems to have um, some kind of issues being looked at by their psychotherapist he's constantly grasping his hand and um, so whilst the whole time whilst harvey bullock and jim gordon are there trying to find out you know the movements the last movements of their daughter he's just clenching his fists and isn't really saying much at all and um, his wife is Filled with tranquilizers, yeah. of which Harvey wants to get uh, in, in on a bit of that action, <laughs> it would seem. And it's mainly the therapist who's kind of talking for them. Um, but it's, you know, this family obviously has uh, issues or obviously is completely shell-shocked by the, the death and murder of their daughter. Yeah, but again, it brings up a great side of Harvey Bullock where, he, you know, he realizes there's a connection between the Milky case in this one where Randall Milky was able to get into people's homes because he had, had janitorial access to, to each of the homes. So potentially this killer has the same kind of access. Um, he realizes that, you know, that the psychiatrist who says, oh, he's not he's not really himself about about um, Mr. Hastings, where Dr. Mark says he's not really himself. He can't really get himself together after this. And very empathetically, uh, Harvey Bullock says that he's that no one recovers from something like this. He's just lost a child. You know, that's a very different Harvey Bullock than we've seen in the last in the last five episodes, and really yeah. good one to see. But something that brings us back to the the old Harvey Bullock, um, and I love this. He's, it's like I'm getting that sense of deja vu, acid flashback. Right. <laughs> uh, it's a great. I, I love it. It's like, the, you know, it is this mix of the Harvey Bullock that we saw ten years ago at the start of the episode mixed in with the Harvey Bullock that we saw last week in um, episode five, mm-hmm. Viper. And it's a, it's a real nice mix that they've got going on, that he comes out with a great one-liner like that, but at the same time comes and shows his empathy with the actual um, people who have been affected by the crime, yeah. um, rather than simply trying to just sort of get through to solving the case and tick it off and check it off and move on to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really nice little mix, I think, of um, different Harvey Bullocks here. But I love that line. I really like that line. Yeah, no, that's really good. It's really good. But he he goes to the autopsy for for this uh, for this murdered victim as well, which is again hugely unusual for Bullock. He usually kind of takes a basic through line of what he thinks might have happened and then finds somebody that fits the bill. Uh, in this case, he's gone to the actual auto- autopsy. He makes a, a, a huge leap uh, as to as to the fact that this could be the same killer, um, and realizes there could be the Lincoln Penny. Um, uh, sewn inside the victim's uh, neck, isn't it? Yeah. Um, 
which is which is again it's, it's the old mo of milky that yeah. he remembers and again this is actual detective work from detective harvey bullock which is you know again great to see yeah. um, people have made a kind of comment about the lincoln penny that there is a, a giant lincoln penny in the uh, in the back cave apparently um or in wayne manor there's a giant lincoln penny uh, and they're they're wondering if there's a connection between those between those two things this whole thing as well in the autopsy is about you know is it a copycat or is it a new person? Or somehow did um, Milky not die? Mm-hmm. You know, it it's still trying to figure out, is this a complete superstition thing? And we have a crossover with Constantine. Or <laughs> is it something else where, um, you know, it's, a, it's just simply a copycat. And it is just this uh, whole thing of, Harvey Bullock stood there at the autopsy going, you know, making an incision at the base of his head, top of his neck, you yeah. know, and the penny. Um, it's, you know, they left this out of the files. Yeah. They um, they thought that giving all these kind of details to the press and getting it out there in the public would attract, in some ways, admirers to to do copycat killings. Um, I think Essen calls it copycat porn. Yeah. Um, this element um, that we ultimately find out that maybe this isn't a copycat. Yeah, like the whole scene really reminded me of something out of David Fincher's Zodiac, um, which is essentially a, a, a police officer, police department um, based crime drama where they're keeping elements of of the murders from the press so that copycat killers don't get get on board so they can try and find the real killer essentially uh, which is obviously what they tried to do here there were three victims of randall milky in the in the 10 years in the past and they obviously kept some of the details out so they could actually find the real criminal so that somebody else didn't just hang people up and, and kill them in the same way um so i really like that i really like the interest the, the interesting side of it um but the real reason why Captain Sarah Essen once again is jumping on the bandwagon here and Harvey wants to get this solved as soon as possible is because of the targeting of the one percenters, um, targeting of the children of the of the rich people in the city. You know? Absolutely. Uh, so once again, we see Sarah Essen and her uh, and her concern about her political career, her career in the police uh, police force. And again, Harvey, you know, he does he does say it himself, you know, so it's quite interesting. And so basically, Essen says to go and visit um, Detective Dix and to get some further information uh, to squeeze everything um, they can from this to yeah. to get information um, on that. So they go uh, to visit uh, Detective Dix, who's in a convalescence home, just to ask him about the goat case and yeah, what's going on. And just whether he released the information about the Liberty Penny to anybody else as well. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's one of those pieces of information that was hidden. Only three people knew about the Liberty Penny. There was Detective uh, Dix, Detective Bullock, and the person who did the autopsy, essentially. Yeah, Hayes. Yeah. yeah. They call him Hayes in this. Yeah. And it's basically, he comes out with a great um, line. I don't have a copycat killer, a lone killer. You have a conspiracy which is really interesting. Yeah. He's like, he almost kind of knows that there's no copycat killer here going on, that there's no kind of lone killer going on, that there is a, a conspiracy going on. And where is that coming from? 
who's driving it. And um, unlike me watching it, he never said, you have a supernatural, you have the spirit of the goat possessing somebody else. <laughs> that hopped into my head immediately. Once you've eliminated all the possibilities, which Harvey seems to have, I would have assumed that then you kind of go, well, are you sure it's not somebody possessing the, these people and making them kill? <laughs> exactly. But he has no, there's no time for that at all with Detective Dix. It's, uh, it's what's the next logical thing that would happen. So obviously I wouldn't make a great detective. But that's, it, it's really good. And it, it obviously later on in the episode gets uh, Harvey Bullock thinking it's kind of, it's chimed with him that there's something that they've missed or that they've overlooked. But one of the other thing as well that we uh, get from Detective Dix is that he gives us a bit more insight into Harvey Bullock and he says watch out for him to, to Jim Gordon. He thinks he's a white knight mm-hmm. jumping into the fray and it's as we were talking about before, it's a really interesting side of, of Harvey Bullock. Yeah. Um, it really kind of chimes with this element that maybe Harvey Bullock could have gone down a different path in his police career. Yeah. Um, and that is really, um, really interesting. I love how incredulous Jim Gordon is. Are you sure you're talking about the yeah. right guy here? <laughs> Harvey Bullock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really good. It's really good. And it's like, uh, yeah, he always thinks yeah. he's the smartest guy in the room. That's because I'm in a room full of idiots, is, uh, is Harvey's <laughs> response, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, really, really good. But really good seeing, uh, seeing Detective Dix. He's an, a character actor that's been in many things from yeah. like My Cousin Vinny to a ton of mob films. Really, really good actor. It's really good to see him on the show, you know. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And we also see um, the caring side of Harvey Bullock, where yeah. you know, as you said before, this idea that he's he's getting the the dirty mags for for Detective Dicks. Yeah, but he does also pay for his day as well, which is uh, which is really important. They, uh, yeah, as as I said earlier on, it's kind of it shows that lighter side and a nicer side of Harvey Bullock. If you get on his right side, he'll obviously take care of you. Yeah, it's really really good. So then we're treated to the next victim, mm. a Miss Amber. Coughlin, who gets uh, abducted by the spirit of the goat, the guy in the goat mask, yeah. um, the black mask. I don't know. Well, I don't want to say too many references that um, bear no relationship the to mask. the Batman mask. Yeah, no, exactly. So um, <clears throat> she is abducted by the guy with the the black mask over his head that looks like goat. Um, we get to find out and some of the suspects names that could be involved in, in being the goat um, in this case. And um, that comes to us through Enigma, who has gone and looked at all the types of um, workmen and maintenance people who have been um, working on and servicing the Hasting building from previously. And um, <clears throat> basically all the other kind of Workmen have kind of been off work or ill and on sick leave, except for this one guy called Raymond Earl. And so Ed Nigma, in a sense, comes up with the the main suspects. Yeah. Uh, of which Raymond Earl seems to be the most obvious yeah, to, but, to the detectives. But once again, with, with Ed Nigma, he knows exactly who it is and he's really impressed with the fact that Jim Gordon has clearly read his report as well it's not it's not even it's not even the fact that that he knows who the answer is he just doesn't give out the answer he doesn't say Raymond Earl straight away that's your guy he gives the the details behind it and allows Jim to solve the puzzle of which one could possibly be the uh, the murderer so we get a bit more in this episode definitely of Enigma yeah there's a little bit more of a focus a bit more exploration on Ed, Edward Nigma, and with um, a particular colleague, in, uh, certainly in Kristen 
Kringle, <laughs> who is obviously a, an office worker who's filing um, case files and so on. But in a sense, we see his awkwardness yeah. around people, um, you know, and actually people's impatience with him. So we know Harvey Bullock kind of has got absolutely no time for Ed Nigma. Mm -hmm. It's like, get to the point, stop dealing with me with all these riddles, yeah. um, for right. want of a better phrase. And we see here, again, another co-worker in Kristen Kringle, who is like, all these riddles, you know, it's kind of annoying. You see the impatience in it. Yeah, it seems to be a, a genuine feeling of all of the GCPD from the moment at the beginning of the episode when... Nigma is the one that wakes Harvey out of his out of his memory or out of his flashback by constantly tapping him on the shoulder, going, "Do you give up? Do you give up that riddle that I gave you? You haven't solved it yet." It, he's looking for acceptance, definitely, but he's not getting it from anybody in the GCPD other than uh, other than uh, Jim Gordon, really. Uh, when he's working, when he's trying to trying to solve the problem of the filing system for Christian Kringle, she doesn't see it as a problem. This is her workplace. She she's the one that sorted it all out. And Ed's trying to impose his logic upon her, um, which is a, a, quite a funny little scene, I suppose. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, not really accepted by uh, by by Miss Kringle at all. No, I mean it's a really interesting um, point, and I think another one is just Edward Nigma's fascination with things. Mm. Um, so he, he talks about, I'd really like to meet your parents, or I would love meeting your parents to Kristen Kringle, which is kind of creepy in its sense. Yeah. But his his take on it, his view on it is that, well, it's like Chris Kringle. So most people have either gotten rid of the surname out of embarrassment, um, whereas your parents have kept it. And the icing on the cake is they've called you Kristen, Kristen Kringle. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like that fascinates him. And Absolutely. I... And considering Christine was probably or Kristen, sorry, was was probably had quite bad experiences because of her name over over the over the time. She probably doesn't find it very funny, but she he, hates him right he now. He loves that there's a little enigma behind her name. Yeah, yeah. She hates him. Absolutely hates him right now yeah. for bringing that up. She kind of like this is why I file myself away in the filing room. You know, <laughs> to just stay away from all that. Yeah. But again, the other thing as well that we get to see is maybe a slightly darker element to Edward Nigma, where he says, you know, chatting to Christine, isn't it fascinating that someone resurrects a centuries old bogeyman? Mm -hmm. And there's that darker element to this fascination that Edward Nigma had. It's like, you know, he's intelligent, he wants to learn, but he is fascinated with some of the more dubious, darker elements. And maybe that's why he's in forensics. It gets him close up yeah. at an autopsy yeah. or something like that. So there's some really good exploration here of Edward Nigma a bit further um, than we've seen previously, Absolutely. which um, I really like. The only bit I'm not entirely sure I like is him holding a mug with a question mark. A yeah. bit too... Far. I think on the nose is probably yeah it's uh it's 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 a bit too far definitely, uh, but then he goes and destroys Kringle's record system which also is a bit too far for for her, um, she, she's very unhappy with him after that, um yeah I don't think she's I don't think he's ever gonna get to meet her parents no no <laughs> it'd be interesting to see whether anything comes back in future episodes on that I mean certainly I had a brief little look to see whether there are any Kristen Kringles in the DC verse. Um, <laughs> I didn't see anything. 
other than Santa Claus. So, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry <laughs> so Christmas. This is our Christmas episode. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, back onto the uh, back onto the the investigation, I suppose. So they they've identified Ray- Raymond Earl. Um, he's kidnapped uh, Amber Cochran, uh, as I'll call her in the in the real Irish version. Um, they've uh, they she. She's been kidnapped. She's been taken to the same abandoned theater that uh, that Harvey and Detective Dix were at ten years beforehand, and now it's Jim and and Harvey there, uh, who both rush in together. Um, very similar to Harvey's original attitude, but now he has a partner that's willing to go with him into this situation. And realistically, only for Jim's intervention, Harvey could have been killed being pushed down those stairs by. Um, yeah, by Raymond Earl. it's a great fight sequence. Mm. I really loved sort of the the tussle between the two and Harvey Bullock getting kind of wrapped up in that sort of uh, polythene sheeting. Um, and it's a really great finishing move from Jim Gordon to kind of put the goat down, basically, uh, as well. Mm. Um, but some of the sort of dialogue uh, from Harvey Bullock, you know, this thing that haunts him. And you really get that here where Raymond Earl as the goat says, you'll never stop the goat, I'll always come back. And Harvey Bullock is there going, stop saying that. Yeah. Like, he really just wants to put this to bed. He he thought he had done with uh, Milky in, in shooting him. Uh, uh, he thought it was over, and all of a sudden this is back. And you can see the annoyance, the frustration that this case has suddenly sort of opened up again. Uh, but they finally get their man, um, and they are there, and he's, he's caught. Um, they look at um, interrogating him, but ultimately there is no connection between him or uh, Milky. And you know Harvey has it here that there's something that is missing, that they're missing something. They've also both got mental illness mm-hmm. and so on. And this is when um, they they suddenly when Harvey, I should say, suddenly hits upon it, where he sees that fist clenching. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like you saw with Mr. Hastings. Uh, I think it's Robert Hastings. And he suddenly makes this link to the therapist, yeah. Dr. Marks. But once again, and I hope this I hope this comes back in in future episodes, once again, it's hugely important to remember here, Harvey found the person that caused these crimes. He's found the perpetrator. Normally, that's Harvey done. He just sticks him in a prison and then lets the lawyers sort it out. That's kind of it. Harvey stays there watching this guy because he doesn't want the case to come yeah. back and bite him like the previous one has, essentially. He he wants to find out, why is this happening? Why is this guy, he doesn't seem to be of the right mental ability, which would never have concerned him before. Why is this guy the actual person that uh, that that is the killer? Uh, and if if there's any possibility this person isn't the right person that he's that he's caught here, he wants to know about it. So that's why he stays watching him the whole time. He's, he's staying to make sure that this is, that he's got his right man, which is very unlike the Harvey we've seen for the last five episodes. And the great thing is, is that as soon as it clicks, he comes out with this great little line. Holy ghost on a bicycle. <laughs> which is such an Irish phrase, but slightly twisted. And uh, slightly referencing Batman 66 as well. Yeah, holy ghost on a bicycle. <laughs> well, in Ireland, we would we would say Christ on a bike. I think is uh, is pretty much a, a, a well, phrase yeah. that we'd use we'd use more often. But uh... but I kept thinking of Robin from Batman sixty six as well. That is <laughs> like you know holy flaming uh, arrows, Batman. Or this was kind of like holy ghost on a bicycle. And I kind of thought, <laughs> oh, very yeah, yeah. Yep, very um, so it's a great little line. It's a great little reference to 
Uh, a well-used Irish saying, yeah. definitely. Yeah, um, I've used it quite a bit. <laughs> I think we all have. Um, we all need to. <laughs> There's always a moment where you need to say that. And it's also, I think, a nice little reference back to um, Batman 66 as well. Yeah, yeah. So Harvey realizes the connection between all of these murders is the psychiatrist who met at the beginning, Dr. Marx, um, that essentially she has been guiding them all to create, the, to kill the one percenters, to kill the children of the one percenters, I suppose. Um, so we've got another vigilante, our third vigilante yeah. in the series so far. Um, she's essentially saying that she's setting things up so the goat will become this uh, this character that strikes fear into the heart of the citizens of Gotham, particularly the one percenters, um, and get them... Uh, she essentially says that Gotham is screaming out for a character like this, for someone that will be uh, will stand up for the, the little man and will protect them from the ruling classes. So yeah. another, another way of, of looking at it. Yeah. I think she calls it an act of therapy for Gotham. Yeah. Uh, that it... it, it manages to be that cathartic release for them when they know that someone ultimately is on their side is making the boss feel uncomfortable <laughs> in a sense yeah and um, and it's like she makes the point don't we all like to devour the rich i think it is or eat the rich Um we all want to do that and it, it's again it's a, it's a really good um vigilante moment but it's a it's a progression from the others hmm. where it is behind a mask and maybe the whole look of that mask becomes um a bit more symbolic that it looks like a bat with the pointy ears uh, and it being black and so on yeah. even though it is the spirit of the goat maybe that has different uh, connotations now but all these new vigilantes that have come in there's a progression on the theme of what a vigilante means. And that's a really um, interesting point and, and, and development that's coming across in these episodes, whether it's starting off from the balloon man, which is in a sense very, I mean, you know, it wasn't, it, so far it's not our favorite episode, but I think it's the worst it episode so far this yeah. season. I think it's clear. We've clearly said that definitely. Yeah. But it introduced the concept mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it started it down that path. And then we came to the next development of that concept. Yeah, in episode five in Viper, we got to see the guy who was essentially killing people using drugs, um, trying to kill the board members of, of Wayne Enterprises. So he was trying to take them out. He was trying to take out the pharmaceutical company. Um, so that was the next level of vigilantism we had. Yeah. And then now, obviously, we have someone who decides that they need a symbol to make their point, mm. um, which is... Uh, as well, or one that is much darker than the idea of balloons, or yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. a much darker uh, way of doing it. Well, Danny um, Cowan certainly wasn't lying to us in New York Comic Con when he said that people are uh, that vigilantes will appear across the city when people can't even trust their own neighbors, their statesmen, their their uh, their mayors, their cops. Vigilantism is going to going to grow in the city more and more. Definitely wasn't lying to us then, was he, John? <laughs> Not at all. Um, but ultimately. Dr. Marx gets taken down, shot in the leg by Harvey Bullock, mm -hmm. and taken in. And for um, the first time, Harvey actually wins his fight against an old man, which is quite, quite a, a turn for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she sets on uh, Robert Hastings onto Harvey Bullock. Yeah. and At least he didn't have a, a Zimmer yeah. frame this time, I suppose. So maybe Harvey, <laughs> <laughs> maybe Harvey had a little advantage there. But yeah, that's the overall kind of uh, the, the overall investigation. You know, is is sealed with uh, with the the 
capture of, of Dr. Marx. And um, one of the big pieces from this episode, and it's pretty huge, and I know we didn't talk about it earlier on, but Victoria Cartagena and, um, and Chris. One of the other elements of the episode is really the investigation of Montoya and Allen into into Jim Gordon. This is fine. This is coming to a head. We didn't see them for the last couple of weeks. Two episodes, I think we've they've been out of the MCU. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely the serialized element of of this week's episode, mm-hmm. which is this ongoing investigation by Montoya and Allen uh, around the disappearance of Oswald Cobblepot. They think his murder, his death, by and at the hands of Jim Gordon. And for them, they fired a witness. They are trawling the docks, um, looking for potential witnesses to this act that's gone down. I presume most people that disappear disappear around the docks. They probably get weighted down and off it goes out to sea where Mm -hmm. all the crabs and the fishes start to enjoy a little tasty snack. Um, (laughs) But they're going around and they come across a witness who clear as day can point that it was Jim Gordon um, who he saw on the docks take out Oswald Cobblepot. Um, so it is a witness to his killing. Um, and they they say, we've got Jim Gordon. Um, you know, and the, the homeless bomb kind of says, you know, he had... The eyes, he looked like an ice-cold killer with ice running through his veins. I mean, that's a serious indictment of what potentially the witness, but also maybe what Montoya and Allen think at this moment in time of of Jim Gordon. Yeah, absolutely. As we know, obviously, this was him trying to convince Oswald that he's, he's, he's giving him his life back and allowing him to live as long as he doesn't come back to Gotham. He was being, he's trying to be deadly serious and convince Oswald that this is the wrong place for him, he needs to get out. Um, whereas, obviously, from a distance, that looks very different. Um, really do like the, the idea of this scene, definitely. Uh, it's something that we we talked about after we watched the episode. It would have been really nice to see Victoria Cartagena and Andrew Stewart-Jones in one other episode, maybe, maybe looking for clues or looking for another... Um, another witness potentially unfailing and not finding that. Um, Christmas Island does make the point that uh, that they have 24 hours left or else the MCU is going to have to give up on on the case, essentially. Yeah, they say they've been trolling the docks yeah. as well. But rather than saying it, it would have been nice to see one quick scene uh, from them. But definitely what you can see from this is something that Victoria Cardahina told us in her interview about, about Rene Montoya. Um, she told us that they that once she gets something once she gets, once she gets the bit in her teeth she'll never give up on a case like this. So I'm I'm not sure. Yes, Christmas Allen thinks the MCU are going to go up in this in 24 hours, but I'm not sure whether Renan Montoya would have given up uh, on this case without knowing for absolute certain what the end of it was going to be. Well, and she's invested in this personally as Absolutely. well. I mean, just quickly, I completely agree. I think it would have been nice to have seen this over. Uh, maybe a few previous episodes this scene because all of a sudden it just potentially seems that there's an awful lot going in the that opening scene that we see of Raymond Montoya and Christmas Allen and I can see why it's done like that because we haven't seen anything previously Mm -hmm. but it just all feels very compacted to the point where it feels like they've shown up and even with that explanatory dialogue have suddenly 
happened across the person who actually saw them. Yeah. It seems a bit convenient. But I think if they'd replaced one of the five endings to last week's episode with the scene of the two of them looking down the docks trying to find the witness, yeah. might have helped. Yeah, something like that. Um, but Rennie Montoya is personally invested in this, and I suppose that's all down to Barbara Keane. Mm. And, you know, this is why she has the bit between her teeth uh, in relation to this uh, this case. One of the nice complementary aspects um, in this episode to the Montoya and Alan story is Jim and Barbara Keene. Mm. And we see them very early on in the episode in uh, Barbara Keene's flat. They've had a falling out and we see them going down that road of recovery, beginning to uh, build the bridges and make up, essentially. And I love what Barbara Keene says um, here, where it's, all I'm asking for, and to be honest, at this stage, I thought she was going to say half of everything, but she didn't. <laughs> um, but she carries on and says, all I'm asking for is half of what you carry. Yeah. She wants to be there for Jim, support him, and be his backup in this world. Yeah, yeah. We... Know, he has another partner in this world. It's not just Harvey Bullock. It's Barbara Keane. Yeah, we've talked about it before. You know, Jim's support system was collapsing for the first couple of episodes, you know, where where he couldn't trust Harvey because, particularly because he hadn't told him that he, that he hadn't killed Oswald. Um, he couldn't trust the MCU, who technically should be his closest allies on the force. Uh, and he started that he couldn't tell Barbara anything because she was going to report them to the papers as her way of helping him. Um, so he stopped trusting in her, you know. Uh, he wasn't telling her about of anything about our, our Oswald Cowlpot, something that weighed hugely heavy on his mind. You get the feeling this couple are, you know, do tell each other everything before he gets to Gotham, you know. Um, he says that he arrived in Gotham to become a cop and this city needs something else. And he's finding it hugely difficult dealing with the pressures of being a cop in Gotham now, you know. Um, so it's nice to have a scene between him and, and, uh, and Barbara Keane where she's essentially reiterating, I'm here, I'm here to support you. You don't have to tell me everything, but tell me enough to take some of that pressure away from you know absolutely and i think this all links then nicely into a, a really great scene between uh barbara keen and Rennie montoya absolutely. on the steps of the um gotham city police department um where you know you see this battle of barbara keen in total support of Jim and saying to her former ex-lover, you must be wrong, saying, you know, you need to stop going after uh, Jim, you know, keep an open mind. And you see then Rene Montoya saying, it's too late. You know, yeah. who he knows, what he knows is going to kill you. And advises her to get out of Gotham, that they have got this warrant issued for his arrest. And... Yeah. And you see the pain in Rene Montoya's face when she kind of says, it's who he knows, it's what he knows that will get you killed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also see in, in you know, in Erin Richards' Barbara Keane, you also see the, the pain that she is going through because she's, you know, she's also saying not only relax on the investigation to Rene, she's also saying to her, I'll give you everything you need. Watch it. I'll watch everything that's happening with him. I'll give you all the information that I possibly can about him. Don't don't give up on him yet. You know she's she's trying to be as supportive for for Jim as she can as well. Yeah, they are both trying to protect someone they care deeply about, if not love. Yeah, um, yeah, but it leads to the big the big closing scene of the episode, really, when uh, when 
Barbara goes back and tells Jim that Montoya has the warrant. And Jim essentially is in a corner and can't run. He can't get out of there. Um, you know, he, t he tells Barbara to leave as well, but she also can't leave. She's She wants to stay right beside him, right at Jim's side. And then we have Alan and Montoya arrive at the door. I can't run. James Gordon, you're under arrest for the murder of Oswald Chesterfield Cobblepot. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. and Alan, I think. No, definitely. I mean, it's a really um, important piece um, and it's very telling that Jim Gordon says, you know, I can't run, I can't run and repeats that. Montoya and Alan are there. They are there on business. Mm -hmm. It's like, we've come to arrest you. You are corrupt. You are untrustworthy and everything is pointing towards you being the killer of a good old source of information and snitch, Oswald Cobblepot, um, that you're in the pocket of um, Carmine Falcone and you're no better than some of these people you're pretending, maybe they feel, uh, you're trying to uh, hunt down yeah. and arrest. And this is a really, really good piece. Uh, and, I mean, this ultimately then builds to the finale between Rennie Montoya and Crispus Allen bringing in Jim into the precinct in front of everyone. Essen getting very territorial about her, her boys. You know, what are you doing? You see this tension blow up between um, the GCPD and the MCU, mm -hmm. or should I say the homicide um, unit uh, and the MCU. You see that with Harvey Bullock as well. Absolutely. And what builds is um, something that we've also then been seeing play out over the course of this episode is Oswald Cobblepot preparing for something and meeting his mother. Yeah, yeah. In some really, really great scenes, I think, which build to him showing up at... Um, at the door of GCPD's precinct. Yeah, yeah. I, just to quickly call out the, the scene with, with Carol Kane as, as uh, Mrs. Cottleput. Don't forget, John. <laughs> if Christmas Allen can't get away with it, you can't. Um, the uh, the scene with uh, with Oswald Cullipot and his mother is very creepy. I, I don't know how to even describe um, how creepy it feels. Um, and particularly within that scene is that Oswald is actually calling out that he thinks of Jim Gordon as a friend, as well as every as all the other creepy elements that are going on in there. Um, Oswald Cobblepot calls out that he he's now has a friend who is a police officer, and he's going to show me the right way. And um, that's just creepy in and of itself. Let alone all the other all the other elements, like this section from Mrs. Cobblepot when they arrive back at the door. I don't know why you always think I'm running off with some painted lady. I don't even date. Why you don't call your mother in all this time? I tell you why. You got tangled in some hussy's demon purse. Mother, there was no hussy. Only betrayal and savagery and... 
all I wanted was a little respect. Yeah, I mean, this is a great scene and it's a great series of dialogue. Um, and I just think Carol Kane is absolutely excellent mesmerizing and, and brilliant as Gertrude Capelport. And th- this dialogue between both her and her son Oswald is, is really good. And I mean, it is just great. You get the hurt of betrayal and savagery from Oswald Copplepot. You you get this switch of where his mom Gertrude is thinking he's done something wrong. He's out with you know women of the night and so on. And he makes the point is I don't even date. And he gradually gets her support as she kind of says you know they do these things because they resent you and you see this support of of a mother towards her sociopathic son <laughs> i mean it's so sweet um, and yeah, but yeah. you see the bond that they have that you know his only child and the support of of his mother and in fairness in the other scene that they have together before oswald turns up at the the precinct where he's in the bath Mm. that's the kind of a relationship you know i was happy enough maybe with my own mother bathing me when i was one two three (laughs) or something maybe at what 20 odd yeah. No, it should have stopped by now. It really, Oswald should have stopped by now. So, I mean, <laughs> this is really creepy. Um, <laughs> it really is. But again, it's the conversation mm. that they have that Jim is the only person that he can trust. Um, and I do wonder does Oswald have the notion that he trusts Jim Gordon because he thinks he understands? and knows Jim's motivations. I mean, it is that idea that was talking about in Arkham World, we had the theory that Oswald essentially set Jim down the path of ha- of that investigation, yeah. this battle between Moroni and Falcone. And the way that played out, does that mean that the reason why he trusts him is because he's seen that not only is it just simply that he spurs um, his life at the time, which may, which has kind of given him this element of trust and friendship that he feels yeah. towards him, yeah. but that he also he is someone who reads people well, um, and that he understands Jim's motivations, can predict that, and so therefore he feels slightly in a power position. Yeah, yeah. Is it is a trust or is it just that he can manipulate Jim Gordon exactly. or feels he can manipulate Gordon? Yeah, but a really, really, uh, really good scenes with with Oswald again this week. This is now. I think we were. were I was going to look it up just before we uh, we went to this episode. Didn't get the chance though. Is this the fifth episode we now end with Oswald Colbert? I think it might yeah, be. So I yeah. think I think originally the plan for the show was that it was going to be the rise of Jim Gordon uh, in in the GCPD. Definitely, what we're seeing here is the rise of Oswald Cobblepot. He's he has been he's become a huge character. You know the fans adore the character and you know don't get me wrong i love robin lord taylor in this part um but there's a a lot of a lot of episodes that are ending on the cliffhanger of what oswald does next really isn't it mm-hmm. yeah um so overall that's kind of that's pretty much everything in the episode that i have uh, anything from yourself that you want to pull out um i think the only other two kind of um points to bring out are 
First of all, we see Selena Kyle very briefly again, Absolutely. like we did in Viper. Yeah. Um, she doesn't have much screen time here, does Cameron Bickendover, but she shows up at Wayne Manor. That's right. Uh, steals into the room where Bruce Wayne is fast asleep um, and takes a good old look at his his mm. corkboard where he is putting all the um, newspaper cuttings, photographs and so on of his own investigation. Yeah. And um, what we see again now is a new piece of the jigsaw on that corkboard, mm-hmm. which is Mathis. Yeah, yeah. Mathis has appeared alongside the mayor and uh, and Falcone. So has Bruce made the connection that the three of them are in cahoots, essentially, on, uh, to take down Gotham, or to control Gotham at the very least. Uh, it's very interesting. So that's really, um, yeah, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, speaking of uh, speaking of the Bruce, um, of Bruce Wayne in this episode, he has a very, very small scene with Alfred, uh, where they're talking about the one percent and and essentially what looks like the the uh, some kind of journalist from E News is talking on screen about all, all the one percenters who've now gone off to their to their ski resorts and and Alfred says um, maybe you should do that, Master Bruce. Yeah, and, you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bruce says, well, why would he take me? I've got nothing to be taken from. As a beautiful, heartbreaking little moment with Alfred, where he goes, uh, where, where there's just a look on his face, where it's kind of, well, there's me, you know, I, I love you, I'm, I'm yeah. caring for you. No, I'd be heartbroken if you were gone too, you know. The expression um, on um, Sean Pertwee's face, on Alfred's face, I should say, is, um, is just tragic and expressive. I mean, it's a great little scene, and. I mean, just from that expression, you get so much of um, the hurt that has just been inflicted on Alfred Mm. by Bruce Wayne by saying that I have no one. And it does. It just screams out, you have me, Master Bruce. You have me. Really excellent piece of understated acting, I think, there from Sean Pertwee. Mm -hmm. Absolutely brilliant. and it just stands out in that little um, little scene because they're not really in it that much at yeah. all. But that little scene is immensely important to the character of Alfred, I think. Definitely. definitely. Anything else for the episode? No, I think that's all um, from me. I think, you know, this is another good episode. I really enjoyed it. And I do think it's one where... Um, the investigation certainly um, could have been a standalone, and I mean, I suppose that's testament to why we've talked so much about the actual investigation. Is that you, you know, you want to find out who is or what is the spirit of the goat. It starts mm-hmm. off as being a supernatural um, element or, or bogeyman kind of element to it. That, that is, that's what it is. Um, and gradually you see that it's becoming a development on the vigilante um, and the concept of the vigilante in Gotham. Um, and then within the serialized elements, again, it's great to see Montoya and Allen back on the screen. I have to say, I thought uh, Barbara Keane and Montoya's um, scene on the steps of the GCPD was really good. Again, I just thought... It showed two strong women, powerful women um, in their own rights, um, trying to protect P- 
people that they care about. Yeah. For Barbara, Jim, and for Renny Montoya, um, her old um, lover and ex, which is Barbara Keane. Yeah. And then it's seeing Oswald and Gertrude, um, mother and son, reunite. And I have to say, on the performance, again, small amount of screen time. I really want to see um, Carol Kane more as Oswald's mum. I think she is superb. Um, this yeah. Faded Glory doesn't kind of sum it all up. It's Faded Glory with that sense of senility coming into yeah. it with the love of of a mother for her son and um, and just you know, that willingness to defend her son no matter what. So for me, a really good, um, really good episode. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm thinking. I think I'm on the same page as you. I'm, I'm, you know, I did enjoy the episode definitely. I'd like to think, you know, maybe in six months' time when they've done when they have more episodes under the belt, that something like this, where there's a supernatural element that eventually plays out to have a have something less supernatural behind it, might play out over a couple of episodes. We might get to see, you know there's a murder that they're investigating in this episode and there's other stuff playing out around it and then the next episode there's another murder connected to the last one you know perhaps that's a way you can stretch a, a story like this out well over the course of it it felt like there's a lot of ideas shoved into this episode um in a good way you know i did i did enjoy it and, and like yourself i wanted to have the answer to the question that was posed who who is the spirit of the ghost at the beginning of the episode um it's nice to have that answer but Sometimes I feel it's an idea that may be a little bit wasted by using it in one episode. You could have stretched it out and had a three-parter or a five-parter that that you know delved into the the investigation occasionally. That might be like might be nice to see soon have something serialized within the investigations lasting longer than one longer than yeah, one episode. Yeah, absolutely. Nice and I think that's something that we've kind of mentioned for other reasons as well. This idea of a few of these themes or story arcs, whether it's the serialized element or now, as you say, with regards to the actual investigations, and yeah. um, just like for example, being given a bit of time to breathe, and um, definitely, yeah. Like for example, I'd love to see them bring in the long Halloween storyline, which is a year-long storyline. It's it's when it's when Batman really struck a chord in the eighties as a, as a comic book was when they started to bring in a storyline that, that wasn't a single issue story. That was something that lasted for 12, 12 issues. And if there's one thing you can learn from that as a TV show, it's to, it's, it's the people will stay on board with your show. If you're, if you give them something to come back for every week, you know, we've got the characters right now. They've been set up now. We're, we're six episodes in. I think, I think most people understand who the characters are going to be. We've now got our first real setup episode for Enigma, the only real lacking character so far. Um, and we have our setup episode for the past of, Harvey Bullock, who he was. Um, we know who he is now, but we know, we, we know who, he, who he was after this episode, which I think is, is really helpful. So now I think it's time to start moving off and jumping into a bit more of a, a longer-term story arc for all of the characters. I think that's a really great idea. If you think that Gotham started in um, early autumn, you have this idea of harvest festivals, you have the idea of Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's Day, mm. St. Patrick's Day, April Fool's, which are all in and connected to the Long Halloween or Dark Victory, mm -hmm. um, which is the follow-up to the Long Halloween. Yeah. That you could get a lot of those 
actual date into a season. Certainly, if it gets renewed for season two or another season, you know, yeah. um, for um a, a twenty two twenty three episode run, yeah, you know, that covers an awful lot of creepy. Um, holidays that could utilize that rogues gallery or different spins on that rogues gallery um, which could be an interesting concept yeah yeah i think even just as i say the simple concept of some overarching threat for the course of the season you know the big bad right now is the mob but they seem like they've been the big bad for the last 10 years of Gotham. It doesn't seem like they're a brand new threat that are coming in at this time when Jim Gordon has arrived. So I'm wondering if you could just stretch out some of these threats that they're yeah. starting with, which they're catching every episode or killing every episode or or potentially are running away after being filled full of Viper, um, like they did last episode. But what about Oswald? Is he not the big impending threat? Or do we feel that we're still... For me, I that feel... That he's still yet to play his card. Yeah, for me, I feel Oswald is still too young. Um, I think there's a very good possibility that Oswald might be uh, might be put into prison. Um, he might be captured and put into prison potentially after this episode. It's very likely he's just walked into a room of Gotham City Police <laughs> Department. Um, he's walked in there and said, "I'm Oswald Cobblepot," looking very happy with himself. It's quite possible that next episode he's going to be arrested, put into prison for the crimes that he has uh, been involved in. Um, it's very very possible that. Moroni will get uh, taken out and put into prison, or Falcone. So once those those older characters are taken out, does that allow Oswald to rise up very quickly? He still seems very young. So if he's put in prison for the next two seasons of the show, potentially, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I it would be very doubtful given the fan base that's out there for him. But um, <laughs> whoa, oh, whoa! <laughs> but he could be running things from inside the prison. You know, that's, that's well, that is true. That, that could be the true. next learning layer. Leaky for... walls of Arkham are yeah. sure to um, or, allow, or a Blackgate prison, which is or a... Blackgate prison, which is another one. Yeah. yeah, are sure to allow the mob or the likes of Oswald Cobblepot to carry on with his crimes and influence beyond um, the walls of the prison or the asylum. Absolutely. Maybe it'll just set up some more contacts for him. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think on that, then, that's the end of our review. Yep. On to the feedback. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, there's some um, feedback from Twitter. And so uh, Lady J, um, who did the great Kitoya playlist yeah, that yeah. we mentioned um, in last week's episode or a couple of weeks ago that we Thank mentioned you. a couple of weeks ago um, was talking about, you know, what should fans of um, Victoria Cartagena and Rene Montoya in Gotham, what should they be called? Um, the questioners, mm -hmm. the questions, yeah. or the objectivists. Yeah. Um, maybe we could also say Monty's gang after, <laughs> after, this um, <laughs> after this episode and Christmas Allen's sort of nice little sort of pet name for Montoya as Monty. So yeah. that, that was a nice little a little play there. Um, Absolutely. And I saw Gotham on, Gotham on 5 or Channel 5 uh, went back to asking uh, Christmas Allen or asking Andrew Stewart Jones is his nickname Crispy. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's an exactly. extra crispy yeah. intellect. Monty um, and Crispy. <laughs> but yeah, so so I went back on this one and just went with uh, went with the questionnaires. What do you think, John? What's your uh, 
I think I would good. go for the questioners the as questioners. well. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's really good. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, send in your feedback to us and let us know what you think uh, the fans of Rene Montoya should be called. Yeah, so, and then on Twitter, Patricia Walter and Julia Morgan and having a, a discussion there awesome. with, uh, with ourselves about um, can't wait to see um, Oswald don the hat and monocle. Um, and I think we're in perfect agreement. We can't wait to see how Oswald transforms into a beautiful penguin um, <laughs> with his plumage and that being kept in tip-top order, which I think, again, we saw this episode where his mom is, like, pressing his suit and making sure that it's all looking ironed, it's clean, so that her son just looks the business for mm-hmm. his and evil a... <laughs> machinations. Yeah, no, he is a, he's a penguin, not a peacock, I remember that. It's a very different... Oh, I know that. <laughs> they still have plumage, don't they? I know, they? yeah. Although it might be oily. Might be a bit oily. Protect it. Well, that's his hair, definitely. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... um, and Julia saying, you know, that Robin will carry it off perfectly. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm we're in complete agreement that, um, you know, Robin Lord Taylor is doing a absolutely amazing job of portraying Oswald Copperpot and this genesis that is the penguin and we can't wait to see that full transformation into the penguin moniker um like everyone else i would think yeah yeah definitely i think one of the pieces he did talk about before was um it was that he wants to bring a little bit of the little bit of the fun side of some of the some of the earlier people who've played this part you know in the past and i think he's really doing that i think robin lord teller's to taking you know he's he's bringing in some of the humor that that has been sorely lacking in some of the the previous incarnations of uh of gotham and of, of the batman character so yeah i'm intrigued to see what he does i'm really really loving it so far so the piece of feedback that we got this week was from daniel butcher who was uh talking about our episode viper he saw he saw the episode and says thanks to us for uh for being right in the middle of two rounds of snow shoveling, he's in a very cold place, obviously. Um, he said his our episode made him wish he could stay in the cold a bit longer to uh, to finish it off, which was which is a really nice compliment. Thanks, Daniel. And Daniel goes on to say, "I love that this episode. I hope shows the beginning of the longest partnership in Batman's career. Robins come and go." But Alfred has always been there. Well, except in the early comics. So I guess Grayson was first. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, definitely that last episode. Um, Viper, the the interaction between Bruce and, and Alfred was great, and it was really good to see them starting to develop this partnership together, and um, starting to develop that relationship that that's going to last for for the for the rest of of Bruce's life, really. Definitely, I I think it was really good, and I think we made the point at the time that you know is this Alfred maybe just um, placating the young Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. um, in this particular thing, or is this the start where he will help um, Bruce Wayne because he understands that Gotham is corrupt and can be dangerous, needs hope, and so is willing to work with young Bruce Wayne in these investigations that he's doing and I think that's a really uh, important um, partnership and it's a real good sort of starting uh, block for that and I think again in today's episode we see the hurt on his face when uh, Bruce kind of 
possibly without realizing kind of makes the assumption that well there's no one here that will miss me i i have no one to to who will miss me and i have no one to miss kind of thing mm. and you see the hurt on alfred's face and i think this is all starting to build into that great long-standing uh, relationship and partnership so yeah i'm totally with you there um daniel or should we call you detective butcher <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe maybe yeah thank you very much for the feedback daniel just a little bit of a little bit of uh, speculation for you as well there's rumors that the uh, the flying graysons will appear in season one of uh, of gotham um so that dick grayson's parents might actually appear before dick's born um they may appear in as the flying graysons which i think is quite cool yeah, no, that so would we'll be very the, cool. Start off the references to the partnership a bit early. Uh, yep, thanks very much for your feedback. It's good to hear from you guys. Um, for, to Lady J and, and Trisha Walter and Julia Morgan on, on Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter at Gotham TV Podcast. If you want to send in your feedback by email like Daniel did, you can email us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com or you can email us either of us separately at Derek at gothamtvpodcast.com or John at gothamtvpodcast.com. Yep, you can also um, follow us on any of our social media handles google plus facebook tumblr just search for gotham tv podcast and of course on twitter as well gotham tv podcast just enter that in and search for us and we're hopefully sure to pop up and uh, on your screens and with a big smiley face and so we really want to thank you for all the feedback interactions discussions um, that we get from it it's great to to have that it's great to put it on earth for you thank you from me for listening uh, really appreciate it thank you yeah and if you want to leave us a review on itunes we have our all of our podcasts are up there just have a look on itunes uh, you'll find us there under gotham tv podcast leave us a review if you can leave us a good one uh, particularly is always always uh, appreciated uh, it'll help other few people find our podcast uh, thanks very much for listening yeah thank you gotham tv podcast do not cross Alan and Montoya. <laughs> Saw him, I think, on film, and I really enjoyed that film. Yeah, um, and he's being rumored to play Deadshot in uh, in the Suicide Squad film. In the Suicide. <laughs> in the Suicide Squad film uh, <laughs> maybe maybe will Tom Hardy actually reprise that role for for another film he think? might reprise that role I don't know about reprise will Tom Can Hardy will Tom Hardy actually reprise the role for <laughs> will Tom Hardy reprise the role for this film do you think probably not because he got <laughs> <laughs> the series keeps running so uh, go check it out and, and if uh, you saw that Dr. Fate helmet I don't know like me I wept <laughs> I was so happy but anyway enough about Dr. Fate and Dr. Strange as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah and of course I do Pen have to say my notes does say Bullock gets porn mags for <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to say that <laughs> 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 if you're getting his right side, he's obviously good to you. He'll buy you porn mags. Right. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> <laughs>